From Washington, D.C., across the nation and around the world, stand by for an overview of the hottest topics and people being discussed on air, online, at the coffee shop and across the backyard fence, powered by the research of Talkers Magazine, The National Conversation. It's time for the Michael Harrison Wrap. Here's Michael Harrison. Thank you, Victoria Jones. Monday, June 20th through Friday, June 24th, 2022. It was a week of gun legislation, vaccines for kids, more televised hearings, bloodshed on the killing fields, rising prices, declining morale, more primaries, and a record-breaking heat wave. And just as we were putting the finishing touches on this show on Friday morning, the Supreme Court announced that it has overturned Roe versus Wade. Get ready for a powerful hour of Black Belt Talk Radio, during which your tolerance for hearing different but legitimate points of view will be tested. We've got lefties, we've got righties, and we've got fence-sitters. Please don't get angry, just listen closely, and while doing so, maintain a degree of educated skepticism, regardless of whether or not you agree. We'll be joined by Kevin Casey at Talkers Headquarters with a countdown of the 10 biggest topics of the week. Jack Heath in New Hampshire on politics. Dr. Dahlia Wax in Las Vegas, Nevada on vaccinations. Todd Feinberg in Hartford, Connecticut on social media. James Golden in New York on race relations. And Matthew B. Harrison in Springfield, Massachusetts on the latest Elon Musk chatter. Influential yappers from across the country with microphones, smartphones, and digital recording devices sharing their observations and the feelings of their target constituents with whom they do a daily dance of affirmation in a fragmented, noisy world where we try to avoid the modern-day syndrome of seeking victory at the expense of truth. Welcome to the Michael Harrison Wrap, heard coast to coast and around the world on great radio stations across the U.S. and the U.K., the past week's hottest political and social topics discussed in the American talk media. Information is gathered from a variety of sources, including data tracked by the broadcasting trade publication Talkers Magazine, of which I'm editor and publisher. You can check us out at talkers.com. This week's program is being sponsored in part by the classic rock group Gunhill Road, in which I am a member. Check out our YouTube hit that supports animal welfare at IKnowYouAreReal.com. That's IKnowYouAreReal.com. Joining us now is Kevin Casey, executive editor of Talkers Magazine. Kevin, give us a rundown of the 10 most talked about stories on talk shows in America this past week. Thank you, Michael. At number 10, climate change. Much of the nation, with a high concentration in 16 states across the Great Plains and the South, continued to be hit by a heat wave this past week. At least a dozen high temperature records were tied or broken across the U.S. from Arkansas to the Carolinas all the way to New York. At number nine, social media and big tech. Algorithms, algorithms, algorithms. New information keeps coming out about how social media algorithms are effectively used by such powerful platforms as TikTok and even YouTube to effectively control our online habits and our view of the world. Meantime, Elon Musk's bid to acquire Twitter remains on the table, as many people are quite comfortable with the mysterious billionaire becoming the arbiter of what's okay and not okay to say on the extremely popular communications venue. At number eight, the Russia-Ukraine war and U.S. foreign affairs. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has entered its fifth month, and there is no end in sight. 
It's now being described as one of the deadlier conflicts of the past 200 years. The rate at which soldiers are dying is at an alarming level, far higher than most wars in the modern era. And regardless of whether or not we want to recognize it, the bloody engagement is really a proxy war between the East and the West, deadly and dangerous as hell, with mounting economic and psychological consequences. At number seven, abortion rights. The nation was bracing for a Supreme Court ruling that will strip away nationwide abortion rights in the U.S., potentially setting off mass protests and furthering the rift between the left and the right in America. The announcement came just as we were putting the final touches on this program on Friday morning. You can be sure it'll be higher on next week's survey. At number six, race relations and civil rights. Conversation about race in America, prompted by last weekend's second annual celebration of Juneteenth as a federal holiday, continued to reverberate into this week's national dialogue. And under the broader umbrella of civil rights, there's growing concern within the LGBTQ community that if the conservative majority Supreme Court could undo Roe v. Wade, what would stop the high court from then undoing gay marriage? At number five, crime, violence, and guns. The Senate passed a bipartisan bill to address gun violence that amounts to the first major federal gun safety legislation in decades. The final vote was 65 to 33, with 15 Republicans joining Democrats in support of the measure, marking a significant bipartisan breakthrough on one of the most contentious policy issues in the country. The bill will next go to the House for a vote before it can be sent to President Joe Biden to be signed into law. Although the bill falls short of what many Democrats had hoped for, it's giving both parties spinnable talking points to bring back to their constituents during an election year. The peculiar combination of emotional outrage and collective numbness sparked by the one-two punch of the Uvalde, Texas school massacre coming on the heels of the Buffalo grocery store murders pushed the public past the tipping point on having the resolve to do something about America's gun problem short of trampling on Second Amendment rights. At number four, COVID-19. COVID-19 vaccinations for children younger than five are beginning across the United States, marking a milestone in the nation's fight against the disease. Last week, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration expanded the emergency use authorizations for Moderna's vaccine to include children six months through 17 years and Pfizer-BioNTech's for children six months through four years. Then the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention signed off on COVID-19 vaccinations for children under five, clearing the way for vaccinations to be administered in that age group. About 17 million children under the age of five are now eligible for COVID-19 vaccines. Regardless, parents are increasingly skeptical and stressed over whether or not to have their kids vaccinated. At number three, the January 6th committee hearings. The focus of this week's televised hearings spotlighted former President Trump's personal efforts, statements, and coercion to overturn the election based on his widely disputed claims of fraud by applying pressure on his own Department of Justice as well as individual states' electoral authorities. Although Trump defenders criticized the committee's use of slick television show techniques to present their case, support for the former president as the presumptive leader of the GOP and its next presidential standard bearer is no longer an across-the-board given. Keep your eye on Ron DeSantis, folks. At number two, partisan politics and the primaries. 
Runoff elections in Georgia and Alabama tested Donald Trump's influence over Republicans yet again Tuesday, while voters in Virginia and the District of Columbia reaffirmed the grip of establishment and moderate Democrats in several primary contests. Although the former president's win-loss record in terms of his endorsements thus far has been spotty, most candidates running for GOP office have been emulating Trump's style and policy positions in strategizing their campaigns. And at number one, a tie between the economy and the national mood. Inflation is continuing to drive up the cost of living in the United States and erode savings and buying power among the citizenry. According to the Wall Street Journal, the U.S. and European economies slowed sharply in June as surging prices of energy and food weakened demand for other goods and services, increasing the likelihood of recession around the world. People are talking about how they feel in the talk media as well as privately. Emotions are frazzled and nerves are raw and concern about the economy is at the center of growing psychological turmoil in America. Thank you, Kevin Casey from Talkers Magazine. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap. Partisan politics in the primaries are gigantic topics of intense conversation on news talk media shows across the nation. I've always found New Hampshire to be one of the most interesting centers of political intrigue for a number of reasons, including, of course, the presidential primary cycle. I caught up with Jack Heath, who hosts a very popular daily mid-morning show heard on a vibrant network of stations across the state with which this show is affiliated. The Pulse of New Hampshire. What, what are your thoughts at this point when it comes to looking ahead to the 2024 election and New Hampshire's role in it? Well, Michael, we've already had several national guests on my show and visitors that they'll you'll, they'll use like a county Republican barbecue to come up to New Hampshire, whether it's a Mike Pence, whether it's a Nikki Haley, uh, Mike Pompeo. They're they're doing the early testing. Trump hasn't been back in a bit, but um, when he ran up here, he was on my show very often. And so you're already seeing the early interest, but I think everything, I think most people, even Ron DeSantis, Trump, they're looking to these midterms to see what happens nationally and in states like New Hampshire. Clearly the first of the nation presidential primary here is secure on the Republican side. There's been some Democrat noise and chatter that the national Democrat, you know, DNC wants to sort of take away the early significance of New Hampshire for whatever reason. But I, I think our primary will hold Interestingly enough, it's going to be really a we have a pretty popular incumbent Republican governor, Chris Sununu, who's running for a fourth term as governor this fall, uh, much like DeSantis is in Florida on the midterm. But we only have two year gubernatorial terms here. And Sununu even I had him on my show uh, just this week and I asked him if he's ruled out a run for president. And he said, no, he's not. But everyone, I think, is really just focusing on the midterms to see how bad that might be for Democrat incumbents or did the Republicans take back the House and or Senate or both or not. And I think after the midterms, the floodgates open here. What do you think about the relationship, um, even though you mentioned, you know, we're, we're looking at the midterms, but um, it's hard not to think about the relationship between Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. How is that shaping up on your radar? Well, it's, it's actually interesting, Michael. It's not just Ron DeSantis and Trump. It's Chris Sununu. Uh, Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. What I mean, what I mean by that is, no, there's no question, no offense to Governor Sununu, DeSantis has a much bigger national profile, bigger state. He's been much more vocal in showing signs that he's positioning to run for president. Interestingly enough, in the most recent University of New Hampshire survey here that just came out of Repub likely Republican presidential primary voters for 2024, DeSantis has now moved ahead of Trump in New Hampshire 
And that's interesting because just a year ago, Trump was way out there, like almost 47, 48, almost 50 percent of all the Republicans he kind of had. It was it was Trump's show here. He's lost ground to DeSantis and DeSantis really hasn't done anything here. Uh, and there's no love loss, politically speaking, between Chris Sununu and Donald Trump. Many times the Republican governor on my show, Governor Sununu, I'll ask him a question about Trump's influence in New Hampshire, for example, in the midterms or in the primary, or would he ask Trump to come up here and campaign for him running for governor? And he'd say, you know, basically he says, why would I do that? I don't think the former president has much impact here on our primaries. And then Trump's people will hear about that. And then Trump will put out a nasty tweet or something about Sununu that he should be challenged in the primary here and we need a new Republican governor. So neither one will admit it, but there's no love lost between Sununu and Trump. And as far as DeSantis, I've even heard rumors that despite any DOG act, DOJ action out of the January 6th hearings that Trump may be announcing he's running soon. I even heard one rumor from a good source from Washington on July 4th, but if he runs before the midterms or announces he's running, I mean, it's clearly because he's trying to hip check. He's trying to hip check DeSantis. So I think Trump is very aware that DeSantis is becoming more the national desire of more Republican voters than Trump. And obviously, knowing Donald Trump, he, that doesn't sit well with him. Do you think that the uh, January sixth committee hearings and the the the, the, the nonstop information coming out of them. I was going to say revelations, but I'm, I'm trying to remain as objective as possible. The nonstop information coming out about them might be eroding Donald Trump's um, respect and popularity among Republican voters and among uh, GOP insiders. Um, yes and no. I think people that like Trump haven't watched a minute of this. I think people that don't like Trump have fed and this is fuel to their fire. Um, I, I don't know if it moves the needle much. Um, I think the way this committee did it with a evening primetime broadcast, hiring a former ABC news producer to jazz it up. I mean, clearly their motive seems to be to get Trump hurt Trump, you know, minimize him for 2024. And that just emboldens Trump to fight more. But I, I don't know if that's what's causing some slippage in these states. I think people are just looking at Joe Biden, who's closer to 80 years old than 70. And they know Trump, you know, is getting older, although maybe a little more vibrant. But, you know, he's out there. He's endorsing a lot of candidates. He's making noise on his daily Trump communications and he's positioning like he's running. Um, But I think a lot of people are just like they want something new. Uh, And Republican voters and, and independent voters, I'm guessing. I think they're looking at you know, at a younger, you know, a DeSantis is a very compelling, uh, interesting, uh, outspoken governor of Florida, whether it's about the Disney woke stuff or education and, you know, public education or COVID vaccines for kids under a year old. He's been very outspoken on national issues and obviously the left doesn't like him at all. Um, but I think you look at the field and there's probably 12 to 15, maybe 18 Republicans that are looking at running now that now if Trump runs because of the pizza slice analogy, he can, he'll, he'll get enough of that one piece to probably win the thing. But I, I don't know. I, I think, I think people are just fatigued and, you know, if you're a Trump supporter, you love him. But I think a lot of people that were sort of quasi kind of like his policies, didn't like his tweets, kind of like, you know, his policies, but didn't like his personality. I think that's causing a little bit of the erosion 
uh, more than anything else. I get the feeling that the Democrats have the same situation with Biden, that a, that, that a, a large swath of uh, Democrat uh, voters uh, would rather see Biden not run again, that, that, that they consider him to be a liability. Would you agree? Yeah, I, I would. And I think it's more prominent Democrats than, than want to be heard about this. I don't hear a lot of people jumping up and down, you know, defending him, talking about his policies. I, I hear a lot of different mixed messages about the Biden White House. That's Jack Heath, who's a talk show host on our affiliate network, The Pulse of New Hampshire. Coming up next, a health update from our go-to medical doctor in Las Vegas. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison Wrap. One of the great bands of the golden age of album rock, Gun Hill Road, has been around for more than 50 years. The members of Gun Hill Road are Steve Goldrich, Paul Reich, Glenn Leopold, Brian Coonan, and yours truly, Michael Harrison. I wrote the lyrics to a song on our new album, What Year Is This? It's titled, I Know You're Real. It's about the relationship between human beings and our friends in the animal kingdom. I know you're Take a moment to write down the following web address to see the music video of this inspirational song that contains some wonderful animal images that'll rock your heart and soothe your soul. Here's the address. Write it down. I know you are real.com. That's I know you are real.com. If you love animals, you'll feel real good after seeing this video. I know you are real. Continuing now with the Michael Harrison wrap, COVID-19 continues to be in the air and on the air. Let's check in for the latest on health from our medical correspondent, a physician heard daily across America on the Genesis Communications Network, Dr. Dahlia Wax in Las Vegas. The, the latest headline was the FDA has approved and the CDC is recommending that six-month-old to five-year-old children now get the vaccine. There's a three-dose series with Pfizer, a two-dose series with Moderna. They're given in a little similarly to the way adults are, uh, 21 days apart for Pfizer, 28 days apart for the Moderna, but the dosing is smaller. And with Pfizer, there's an additional dose at the eight, um, after eight weeks of the second dose. So it seems a little confusing, but for us doctors, we've been preparing for this. We know that um, you know, the youngest of, of our population would be the next to hopefully you know, have access to the vaccine. But we're also seeing that a lot of parents are not as enthusiastic about it because of the low hospitalization rates, death rates of COVID, and the breakthrough cases that happen in vaccinated individuals. Mm. So, you know, one argument I had for parents is, look, you know, we don't want the children to get the virus. We don't want them exposed. We don't want this virus living in them. But sadly, the vaccines have not proven to prevent, you know, any sort of infection. You can still get an infection. So it's all about, well, we want to prevent serious infection, serious hospitalization, death from COVID, and a lot of parents aren't that convinced that COVID does that. Yeah. We are seeing higher COVID numbers as opposed to flu um, um, in terms of, you know, serious numbers, but but not, you know, not to the degree that would convince parents to mass vaccinate. I get the impression that more and more people are fearful of, of the vaccination and opting to go, you know, uh, without it, rather face the flu-like symptoms or the milder symptoms that... Um 
everybody says exist now, then uh, risk the vaccine. Um, it, uh, people are afraid of the vaccine. It's crazy. Um, or is it? Yeah, yeah. It's 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 intimidating because, you know, many of us parents were, were very well versed on vaccinations. And when we bring the children in, even though we support the vaccines, we always pray, we always hold a breath and we always worry that, you know, one shot or child might not be lucky. And so we've told parents that you have to, you know, the reason why we're doing the vaccine is there's that one in a million chance that, um, you know, they could get the disease or the one in a million chance there could be a side effect. So now if there's a one in a million chance, they're starting to outweigh, you know, uh, you know, am I going to lose my luck? Am I trying my luck? Mm. And and um, it's it's. It's a very, very, uh, it's a very stressful time for parents, and 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 I get the concern on on all sides. And I wish the vaccines completely repelled the virus because that would make it much easier, uh, you know, for us as physicians to say, look, we don't want your child getting this virus, like Zika or like Ebola. You know, keep that virus away from the child, and that's what the vaccine will do. But we know the vaccine doesn't do that, so it's a harder sell. Wow, uh, do you are you of the mind? Uh, the school of thought that the vaccines, although they may not protect you from getting the virus, do have an impact on having the virus's effects be less, you know, be more mild, less, uh, uh, you know, terrible uh, than if you don't have the vaccine. So in when they first rolled out, I was definitely of that thinking because our bodies were very naive we didn't want anything to do with this virus, and we had a very naive immune system, and we needed anything possible to help get our antibodies. Once Omicron broke through, and then all the different variants, the average American has some sort of immunity. So even though I think the vaccines, in theory, would hopefully protect against hospitalization and, and death, um, now that most of us are being exposed to COVID on a regular basis, it, it's becoming less urgent, you know, to have the artificial immunity because many people have some form of natural immunity. The problem is the natural immunity isn't lifelong and it isn't long lasting. So I think every little bit helps. But um, the argument that, you know, you need something to protect yourself, the average person is saying, but I had COVID in January. So, you know, it's it's getting harder to argue what was the original thinking in, in um, 2021. That's noted physician and talk radio personality, Dr. Dahlia Wax of the Genesis Communications Network. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap. I had the opportunity to be a guest on Todd Feinberg's show this past week. Todd is the most influential political news talk radio personality in the state of Connecticut, and he's heard daily in afternoon drive on our affiliate WTIC. Here's an excerpt from a very spirited conversation that took place between us. Thanks again for being here, Michael. And let's recap for people exactly what we may have agreed on thus far, that our political system doesn't work as well as it once did, and it, or at least it's not working well now. And it's not working well now because we are the proprietors of this system and we're not doing our part. Is that a safe assumption that we're in agreement on that? That's the basis of it. Um, it's not. It's it's easy to cast blame, um, and and we could blame the society. We can blame the people. We could say, you know, in a democracy, you get the government you deserve. It's more complicated than that. Than that. 
So I don't I don't want to be overly simplistic about it. But but yes, um, individual responsibility is the, the basis. It's the cellular the cellular units that 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 our whole society is based on is each citizen. If each citizen shirks their responsibility or or their principles or doesn't clean up their own backyard and take care of the people around them and their homes and their families and their co-workers uh, and, and everything is abstract. Uh, how they live their own life is different than how they expect others to live. Well, then there's no way it can work. And I think that we're suffering from an extreme case of that to begin with. We also, though, are facing problems that we've never faced before, and they have to do with incredible um, rapid advancements in communications technology. The, the, the technological advances that we have, keeping in mind that technology is always a double-edged sword. You know, you make new weapons of war, they can preserve you and, and keep your, your country and your, your tribe free, but it also can destroy you. Um, technology is a double-edged sword, mm -hmm. and we are enjoying the benefits and the downside, you know, we're being ravaged by um, the new technology, the new communication, social media, instantaneous, you know, um, communications on every level, all these different channels, um, all the input and data that's being generated. It's 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 making us crazy. But so the effect only, of all that yeah. is that there is. So we tend to worship at the altar of innovation. And that any new thing coming along has validity simply because it is a new development, and That's therefore, a yeah. yeah, because uh, I think what you're you're suggesting is that we're not really prepared to operate at the speed that our uh, that information now flows, that yep. perceptions can now change, that subcultures can exist outside of our purview, outside of our view, or, and, and without visibility. Opinions can be shifting without any external interaction with those changing opinions, so they come up at us w with a surprise. The, uh, there's so much about the speed of communications right now and the, uh, the, the ability that we have to non-geographically bind ourselves to other groups of people. And without having to meet them and, and sit around a cafe and have a conversation, you know, somehow our humanity gets extracted from the political interaction as we do it online. Yes, well put. Um, never before have we been so connected and so uh, alone. It, <laughs> yes. it, it, it's a strange That's feeling. so true. We're connected to everybody on the planet, and yet we feel alone. And what does that mean? It means we're becoming drones. It, it's like we're a hive culture. You know, if you watch Star Trek, it's the Borg. If you watch um, uh, biology and, and look at our own planet, it's like being an ant or a bee. Um, it, we're part of a collective that brings us all together, but has absolutely taken away the good feeling we have as individuals with relationships with other individuals. And, and, and it's perplexing, and it's very hard to explain. I, I mean, when I, when I go out on the thin ice of trying to explain a thing like this, what I feel in my mind, and then to, to put it into words, it's very difficult to explain, especially in a quick medium such as this. But do you get my drift? Yeah, well, how about this observation? Four young people are sitting together in a pizza shop at a little table for four, shoulders almost touching, within easy sight of each other and sound of each other's voices. What are they doing, Michael? They're texting. Exactly. And, and make it even more uh, frustrating, uh, if it were the last couple of years, all four of them may have been wearing masks while doing it. Yes. <laughs> 
<laughs> so but, on top, but, on top of everything, the, the texting I, and wearing yes, masks. Yes, yes. So just to make sure that you can't really see each other's uh, faces and and feelings at the same time. But but think about the idea that we're at a place where the you get together with friends, and the people who are more important at that moment are the ones you're not with. Exactly. And they wonder why very young people don't listen to talk radio because they don't know how to listen to or engage in a conversation for crying out loud. <laughs> they don't use the phones on their cell phones. They only exactly. Send... <laughs> they don't understand what talk is. <laughs> right. They, they and they and they certainly aren't learning literature by writing in text language, which I understand it's for speed, but it's totally disintegrated all the colors on the palette of the English language. And when you don't have words to express your thoughts, you can't communicate. And if you can't communicate, you can't teach and you can't work out things. And, and if you, you haven't heard elevated talk from some of the finest minds who've written words before, if you're Correct. cut off from everything really that bound mm -hmm. humanity into a thing called humanity. But, but, and here's the kicker, you're not cut off from the long arm of Big Brother. You're not cut off from surveillance. You're not cut off from big tech having all your private data. You're not cut off by anybody being able to find out anything about you. And I've often said the First Amendment is the foundation upon which freedom is built. The second uh, element of freedom is privacy and when you lose your privacy hey you can have a first amendment you're still in you're still in deep you know what we're losing our privacy on a level that I have never seen before either in my lifetime or in my study of the past so how do we turn all this around this is getting more dire the further we go I feel like we need to uh, do a little a little countervailing conversation here is there do you see some way to if we if we're so being so victimized by by progress that being technological developments and those are speeding up and we're talking you alluded to earlier uh, coming into a time where that will be entirely different because of technology how do we prepare for that how do we maintain control over it if we can't control today by addressing it and educating our children to handle it, because this is a generational problem. This is not a problem that can be solved by Joe Biden declaring a tax holiday for gas. <laughs> Brings us back full circle to what we were yes, talking about. But, but we don't have systems in place anymore that are functional. That was part of our conversation earlier in the hour as well. If we don't have a functioning political system, if we don't have leaders we respect if we don't have a place where we can go and have a constructive conversation what do we do to get started have a party and forget about it and just enjoy yourself order a pizza and All watch right. TV. what kind of music do you want to play yeah exactly and in other words it's back to what i talked about before bailing bailing out right retreating retreating into your own world retreating into your own private life retreating into your own virtual reality whether it's ai or just figuratively speaking and um, this is this is a severe crisis. We're going through change. As I said, we've gone through change before. We've gone through crises before. But this has got to be addressed. And I think it starts by recognizing the problem, openly talking about the problem, not trying to 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 engage in conversation with talking points to make people feel that you're giving them what they want to hear and it's not just politics it's sports it's culture it's entertainment it's it's everything in other words hypocrisy is the enemy of real progress mm -hmm. in terms of uh 
us being a good, a good, healthy society. And um, we have to teach our children how to consume media. But we have to learn how to consume it ourselves before we can teach it. It comes down to uh, intelligently utilizing these dangerous, powerful, potent forms of media that are becoming commonplace. So it's possible that, that this looks more alarming than it is because we're early in a transition into new technology so well it looks overwhelming right well now. put well put. but maybe we'll come to terms over the next uh, 20 or 30 years and i and think we will but i do think that if you and i were to come back or anybody listening to this broadcast were to suddenly come back in a minute and it's 30 years down the road mm -hmm. you would be completely out of it you wouldn't <laughs> you 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 would absolutely not recognize what we consider now to be the cultural icons and practices that we grew up with and that we're used to. Give an example of what you think that will mean. Well, I mean, people will be talking to each other, but you won't know they're talking to each other. They'll be we'll having, be having subliminal, direct, brain-to-brain -brain conversations. Without question, we're almost there. We are. And, and that means your head could be hacked. Somebody can break in just like they can break into the computer. Bingo. Just think about that one statement I just made. We could talk two hours about that. Yeah. Your What's the first thing hacked? they're coming for? That's an excerpt from a conversation that took place between me and talk show host Todd Feinberg of our affiliate WTIC in Hartford, Connecticut. Coming up next, a visit with WABC New York talk show host and former Rush Limbaugh producer James Golden. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap. This report is brought to you by Genesis 2 Project, G2P. Recently, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the ODNI, released a preliminary report on possible threats posed by UFOs, now known as Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, UAP, and the progress the Department of Defense, UAP Task Force, has made in understanding any threats. Dr. J.C. Van Velkenberg is a former Los Alamos National Lab biophysicist who has been working with G2P to bring scientifically sound UAP data to the public. G2P has released the first scientifically authenticated documentation of UAPs, including images captured with infrared technology. Primo Forensics performed the digital forensic analysis. In tandem with the ODNI report, these data support the development of relevant processes, policies, technologies, and training for the U.S. military and government personnel upon encountering UAP. Visit Genesis2Project.com. Continuing now with the Michael Harrison Wrap as we discuss the hottest topics of the past week in the national conversation. I caught up with one of the most interesting individuals in the talk radio universe, James Golden, a.k.a. Bo Snurdly. 
He's a native New Yorker and a longtime broadcaster. Currently, he's heard every afternoon on WABC in the Big Apple, but he's known to millions of listeners across the country as the producer of the late Rush Limbaugh's syndicated radio show. The conversation you're about to hear is excerpted from a longer interview I conducted with James Golden for my weekly podcast, The Michael Harrison Interview. We'd already discussed our mutual love for radio, having grown up in New York City, and shared similar memories about how radio, as well as TV, movies, and even newspapers, had an element of magic about it, something that drew us to a lifetime love of the medium. As a young African-American growing up um, with, with uh, ties and roots to urban radio, and you mentioned the, uh, the great African-American DJs and, and the R&B music, was there any kind of a transition that you had to make in terms of the politics of it all? Uh, was there stress on you? Uh, did you have uh, peer pressure from um, fellow African-Americans because of Russia's conservative position and um, the fact that he probably wasn't the most popular radio personality in the African-American community? How did you deal with that? And, and, and what was your personal evolution regarding the politics of the situation? Here's the thing. Most black people, especially in that era, grew up with conservative values. So whether they call themselves conservatives or not, we, we all grew up with the same conservative values, like most other Americans. You know, um, <clears throat> back then it was it was more common for black people to have two parent families than to have single families, went to church, tried to move ahead in school. So we were we grew up in neighborhoods, at least middle class. And I come from, you know, middle-class family in, in Queens. Our values are just like most other middle-class values. It's more socioeconomic, I believe, than it is race. But in terms of, <clears throat> in terms of my peers in the industry, um, I have never come across uh, any of my, the ones that I know, my peers, that have had anything negative to say about my, uh, my moving into uh, the, the role that I played with the Russian and Boss show. In fact, many of my peers told me that they were proud of me and that this is, you know, because we, look, we all loved radio. And so they understood what it mean, meant from that point of view. Now, did they agree with the politics? No, but they, but they recognized what an important figure Rush Limbaugh was in the broadcast industry, and they were proud of me for being associated with him. And as well they should have, and, and something that I have to tell people for outside the industry all the time, that um, just because um, people may have different points of view politically that they express on the air doesn't mean that the commonality of radio and our, our our commonality as broadcasters doesn't supersede that. I'm often asked that about our conventions and, and Talkers Magazine and, you know, people take things literally that, you know, if you're a liberal or you're a conservative on the air, that's the way you are and everybody you know is liberal or conservative and you judge people that way and there's so much more to life uh, beyond beyond, as you and I earlier uh, called it, the magic of media. That magic of media could be very misleading. I have to tell you, some of the worst people I know are people that agree with me politically, and I keep my politics usually to myself because of my role, and some of the best people I know I disagree with politically, and I'd much rather be with them at dinner or in a foxhole if, uh, if the situation were such. And that's basically what you're saying. Am I correct? 
Yes, absolutely, Michael. What do you stand for? Now you have this big platform. You're on WABC. You're a talk show host in your own right. Um, we're almost two years or about two years past the passing of Rush Limbaugh. It's a different world for you on every level. What If someone were to say, um, I never heard you on the air, um, what's your mission? What do you stand for? Who Who is James Golden, radio personality on WABC in 2022? He's different than any other conservative you hear. I have a very different take of the world, and I'm free to, to explain that take. Um, it's, in some cases, conservative ideas, as you know, certainly nuanced. But guess what? My show's a lot of fun. We do a lot of, we play a lot of music. We talk music. We do music podcasts. I have interest in so many things, whether it's science, whether it's news of the day, the arts. And of course, being in New York and growing up in New York, there's so much about New York that there, there is to talk about so many different issues. So it is a fun view of the world. It is, you will recognize the conservatism, but you will also hear some things expressed very differently because I have a very different view because of the way I grew up and where I grew up and my exposures than other conservatives. So I don't do, look, I don't do red meat conservatism. I do conservatism. I have fun with what I'm doing and I'm not afraid to, uh, to, to expand the boundaries and to, and to explore other ideas either. So I just like to think of it as having fun. I'm part of the magic again. This is part of the magic that I love about radio. You can come on and create and have fun and interact with an audience that's an intelligent audience. And at the end of the day, leave feeling good. And that's what I want people to do after they hear the show. I want them to leave feeling good about life, about the country, to feel optimistic and feel hopeful and to have some fun. What do you see as the major challenges facing the American conservative movement at this point, uh, drawing upon your history, your perspective, and the fact that you have such a viable platform? Uh, obviously, uh, when you say you have a different conservative point of view, and then you mention having fun, you use the word red meat. Um, obviously, Donald Trump is still in the equation. What, what advice do you have, or what is your observation of the problems and or choices facing the American conservative movement at this point in time? Most people want in America are live and let live. They want to be free to live their lives as they see it without much government in interference, but they are more than just politics. We get all consumed with politics. It becomes the world. We're political 24-7. Most people want a life. They want to spend valuable time with their family, their friends, their loved ones. They want to do fun things. They want to enjoy the, the, the successes of being an American. And I think that we can get wrapped up too much in the politics and forget about these other sides in life. And we need to talk to people where they live on all of these fronts. And that way we will connect with more people than ever before. And I think to a degree, Donald Trump did that. He identified a lot of the problems that people have. He talked to people in a way that the politicals don't, that indicated he knew their struggles as Americans. But I think it's more than just the struggles. I think that Americans appreciate leaders that also remind them 
of the gratitude that we should have for this country because it's such a unique and wonderful place to live. That's former Rush Limbaugh producer James Golden, now a talk show host in his own right, heard daily on WABC New York. What you just heard is an excerpt of a much longer interview I conducted with James Golden this week for my podcast, which will be posted this coming Tuesday at mhinterview.com. Check it out. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap. We have time now for one more quick thought. Our weekly Elon Musk watch. For that, we turn to our show's executive producer, associate publisher of Talkers, and media law professor, the other Harrison, Matthew B. So, Matthew, it seems every week Elon Musk makes it to the Talkers Top Ten survey. Even if there's no uh, Elon Musk news, uh, there is a fascination with him. And uh, people talk about him, whether it's Twitter, whether it's um, some kind of strange relationship he has with his... um, a transgender daughter, which I, I didn't even know he had any children, um, so I guess I haven't been following him that closely, uh, to uh, issues that he has regarding uh, his, his automobile manufacturing businesses around the world. First of all, um, have you, is there anything new on the Twitter deal? Is it still on the table? It's still on the table, and the value uh, being talked about, the $44 billion or so, is still uh, in play. And uh, when I listen around on the radio and television, most of the conversation, most of the people think it's wonderful that he's coming and he's saving Twitter from uh, the ravages of uh, censorship and bias. But what troubles me is that now because one man is a mega billionaire and he says that he's going to, you know, make it uh, uncensored and unbiased, but he becomes the, the arbiter. He becomes the judge of what's biased and what's not biased. And and that troubles me as much as... Uh, it being biased. Um, it, it, I'm all for free market, uh, you know, capitalism. But um, there's something about somebody being so wealthy, they could just plunk down the money and own the means of communication and then promise that they're going to run it fairly. I don't think that's quite within the spirit of the First Amendment. But that's neither here nor there. What's the problem he's having with his kids? Well, um, first of all, there's even a question of how many children does Elon Musk have? (laughs) Not that uh, Wikipedia is the best source for information, uh, but that and and Google searches don't seem to agree. There's either seven children, but there might be eight children. And and I assume this is with a variety of partners? Um, Two, two specifically. Uh, He was married to a woman, Justine Wilson. Uh-huh. Uh, and their child, uh, originally named uh, Xavier Alexander Musk, sought for a uh, name change and recognition of uh, gender as female and a birth certificate to reflect those changes. This this has just happened or this is just coming to light? It's just coming to light. It was filed uh, a few months ago. I see. So so he has a tr- among his many children from his two wives or, or partners, um, is a transgender woman who is his daughter and um, wants to be recognized as a woman and wants also to be completely estranged from her father. She doesn't want any part of him. Am I correct? Correct. Um, she has tweeted herself saying that she had quite a weird childhood and she can't believe that she is as normal seeming as she is. Oh my. So, um, so we don't really know much of the details about her her problem with him. We don't know if it's political or personal. It, 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 that has well, it really is. We do. We do actually. Oh. Uh, it, it has to do with Musk's tweets uh, upon his opinions of um, pronouns. 
Oh, that's right. That's right. I think he said something to the effect of it just makes things messy. He's not he, he's not anti transgender or anti gay uh, or or anti anybody. He claims he just doesn't like the inconvenience. Uh, yeah, some, the some, aesthetic. The aesthetic. That's the word he used. Oh, and that was uh, offensive to his um, his his daughter. Correct. And now his daughter is uh, one of, of twins, and the other three children are actually triplets from that, the same mother, Justine Wilson. Okay, so that, um, that, that makes having so many children less um, uh, noticeable, I would think. You know, it's like he has, what, eight children, but uh, one pair of twins and two pairs of triplets? So six, seven... No, no, no. One, one pair of twins... One one triplets, one set of triplets, and then two additional children with a new partner. All right, so um, that 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 changes it that changes it a bit. But but you don't really hear much about this guy's personal life. Uh, th- as a matter of fact, it's unusual that we just heard something about it. Uh, a lot of people don't even know, as you said, you know whether he's married or not. Correct, correct. He does generally keep uh, his private life pretty private. Um, though his last uh, his last partner was a Canadian singer and uh, it was quite public. And of course, Elon himself is quite public no matter what he does. I think, I don't recall, because uh, I'm, I'm just starting to take him seriously as some type of a cultural and economic force besides just being a wealthy guy who has come up with some amazing scientific innovations. But I think his mother appeared with him when he hosted Saturday Night Live. And I, I, I'm trying to remember, it was kind of an offbeat, weird performance. But uh, again, nobody really knew how to take him. But I do believe he had his mother with him. I don't actually know about that. Yeah, it's, I, I may be wrong. But then again, I may be right, as Billy Joel said. So in conclusion, he's having problems uh, financially with his um, foreign um, uh, where, uh, manufacturing plants for the car, for the Tesla? Yeah, well, I guess the problem with having all of these giant plants scattered throughout the world is that uh, if a supply chain problem happens at one of these locations, it could affect everything. And that seems to be what's happening. That's Matthew B. Harrison, the show's executive producer, associate publisher of Talkers, and media law professor. And that about does it for this latest installment of the Michael Harrison Wrap, an overview of the national conversation. Looking back at the week of Monday, June 20th through Friday, June 24th, 2022. Looking ahead, I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about next week including the ever-lurking unknown factor, that unanticipated surprise story that can take the national conversation spinning off in a totally unexpected direction. We sure do live in interesting times. I can be reached via email at michaelatalkers.com. My podcast, The Michael Harrison Interview, can be heard at mhinterview.com. And if you want to stay in touch with the inner workings of the talk media industry, please visit talkers.com. The Michael Harrison Rap. Our producer is Matthew B. Harrison. Thank you for listening. The Michael Harrison Rap is a production of Good Phone Communications presented in association with Talk Media Network and Talkers Magazine. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. Oh.